Gospels, showing the, the readers who Jesus really is. But these two chapters do much more than just that. Because I don't know whether you've noticed, but Matthew has three blocks of miracles in these chapters with teaching points in between them. The first block gives, gives us the healing of a man with leprosy, then the healing of the centurion's servant, which Jesus does from a distance, and then the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then we get a paragraph about the cost of following Jesus when he says to the teacher who comes to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then we get the second block of miracles with the calming of the storm, the healing of two demon-possessed men, and the forgiveness and healing of the paralytic. We then get the calling of Matthew and the passage about old wineskins and new wine. And with this passage tonight, we have four more healings, which are followed by the passage we'll look at next week. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. There are no other blocks of miracles like this anywhere in Matthew. He does a similar thing later on with parables when he clumps them together. But the fact that these miracles are all gathered together around short teaching paragraphs must mean something. Firstly, they're clearly intended to show us the answer to the disciples' question. What kind of man is this? Obviously, a very different kind of man. In these miracles, Jesus demonstrates authority over sickness, nature, evil, and ultimately death. Secondly, the teaching points interspersed among these miracles make it clear that while life with Jesus will clearly show you some amazing stuff, it won't be easy, and it could cost everything. But thirdly, they show that what Jesus did while here on earth is just a hint of what is to come. Matthew has already shown us what Jesus is capable of, of what he has authority and power to do. But as he, as he reiterates that through these four miracles, he adds one more layer to it. Three of the miracles have something very important in common. And hopefully you'll spot it as we go through. I'm going to put the healing of the dead girl to one side for a minute. And we'll come back to her later. So firstly, the sick woman. Do you remember when I talked about the healing of the paralytic a couple of weeks ago? I said that Matthew gives us very little detail compared to the other gospel writers. In the other gospels, we hear about the roof being opened and the man lowered down. But Matthew doesn't give us that. And he does exactly the same here with this woman. If you look in Luke, for example, he tells us that she'd been to many doctors, she'd spent all her money, but no one had been able to heal her. But Matthew doesn't give us any of that. He just says that a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years came behind Jesus and touched the edge of his coat. Matthew doesn't feel the need to give us all this information because just like with the story of the paralytic, he's telling us about this event for a very specific reason. The fact that Jesus can heal what no one else can isn't his point here. He's already shown us that. For Matthew, the focus here is much more on the how and the who of this healing. I'm going to come to the how later, to the who later, but the how raises a question. 
One, I have to confess, I'm not sure I've 100% worked out the answer to. This woman has obviously heard about Jesus. Either she's seen him for herself or she's heard on the grapevine that Jesus can heal people. She's been sick for 12 years. She must be at the end of her tether. But whatever she's seen or heard has convinced her that this is her chance for a new start. If I can just touch his coat, she thinks, then I will be healed. How she's come to this conclusion, we have no idea. Jesus hasn't healed anyone that way before, as far as we can tell. But that's what she's decided as her plan of action. Push into the crowd, touch Jesus' coat, and get out of there. But she doesn't get away with it. Both Mark Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus felt power go out of him when she touches his coat. But Matthew just says that Jesus turned and saw her. He has no conversation with her in Matthew's gospel. He doesn't ask her why she reached out. But instead he says, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Now Mark and Luke say she was healed from the moment she touched his coat. But agree that Jesus said it was her faith that had healed her. So here's my question. Was it touching Jesus' coat? that healed her, because it was filled with Jesus' power? Or was it that trusting that Jesus' coat could have enough power to heal her that did it? I don't have a firm answer to that question. But to me, it seems similar to the faithful ones of Old Testament Israel. And now I feel very nervous saying this with Phil in the room. Um, (laughs) Who trusted in the sacrificial system to keep them in relationship with God. The sacrifices they made could never be sufficient for the full forgiveness of sins. And I'm sure there were many who took the whole thing seriously and knew they couldn't really. But they kept making the sacrifices because they trusted that God would be faithful to his promise. It wasn't actually the sacrifices that saved them. It was their faith in the God who required them. Phil Yancey says that faith is believing in advance something which will only seem logical when seen in reverse. Faith is believing in advance, something which will only seem logical when seen in reverse. So my inkling is that it wasn't actually the act of touching the coat that healed this woman. Rather, it was the faith that believed it could. The next miracle is the healing of two blind men. And these men are treated very differently from anyone we've met so far. They cry out to Jesus from the side of the road, begging for mercy. But he doesn't stop. When he walks on, they follow him into the house he goes to. Now, in these miracles in Matthew, we've seen many people commended for their faith and promised that their faith would bring healing. But these two men are questioned about their faith. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? How often we pray with no real belief that anything will happen, if we're honest. How often do we say we've trusted something into God's hands only to instantly wrestle it back? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you really? 
These two men declare that they do believe, and that faith is then tested as Jesus reaches out to touch their eyes. Because unlike others, he doesn't just say, your faith has healed you, and they're miraculously healed. No, these two men are told something very different. Look at verse 29. According to your faith, let it be done to you. According to your faith. So here's the test. Do they really believe Jesus can heal them? Everyone in the room is about to find out. They obviously do because their, their sight is restored. But then they receive a rather strange and very stern warning from Jesus. See that no one knows about this. Only one other person has been told something similar. The leper in chapter 8 was told not to tell anyone but to go straight to the temple and present himself to the priest. But that was purely so that the priest could certify him as clean and he could return back into society. There's no such need for these men. So why is Jesus so firm with them? Well, look at verse 27 where we first meet them and specifically at what they call out. Have mercy on us, son of David. Why does Jesus walk on? He seems to ignore them as he just goes indoors and they're forced to follow him inside. Why does this conversation have to be had behind closed doors? It's the same reason that he tells them to keep quiet. By calling him son of David, they are acknowledging him as the promised Messiah. They don't just think he's a great teacher like the man who claimed he would follow him anywhere. They don't just think he's a great leader like the centurion who recognises his power and authority. They don't just think he's a great healer like the crowds who bring the sick to him. They know he is the one who will save his people. But Jesus knows that the crowds won't understand what that means. These men probably don't. He knows that Israel is waiting for something very different than he will offer. He won't bring the freedom from oppression that they're expecting. He won't bring the restoration of Israel in the way they anticipate. Jesus knows that the crowds need to hear him teach. They need to learn what the kingdom of God is really like. They need to understand what he's come to save them from. And so for now, he doesn't want that message going out about who he really is. That's why he seems to ignore these men and walk on. That's why he talks to them behind closed doors. That's why he tells them not to tell anyone else. Unfortunately, like everyone else he gives this warning to throughout the early pages of the Gospels, they ignore him and spread the news everywhere. The third miracle we see is the healing of the demon-possessed man. Matthew tells us that he didn't come on his own but was brought to Jesus. It seems that the demon is keeping him mute. Again, with this miracle, Matthew gives us frustratingly little detail. We don't know if Jesus said anything to the man or indeed to the demon. We don't even know how he drove it out. Did he just command it? Did he touch the man? Was it a bit of both? Matthew doesn't feel the need to give us this information because this isn't a lesson in how to exercise a demon. The method involved is superfluous. All we need to know is that when the demon was driven out, the man could speak again. 
The crowd are amazed, declaring that nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. They're aware that they've witnessed something new. Something is different here. No one in the crowd appears to have put their finger on exactly what is different, but they're in agreement that this man isn't like anything else they've seen before. Well, all apart from the Pharisees, who have totally the opposite reaction. They're not amazed by what they're seeing. They are incensed. This is no miracle. This isn't God healing anyone. This is just another demon. They believe that the only way Jesus could be driving out demons is if he's using Satan's power to do it. They've seen in the scriptures what God is capable of. They've seen time and time again the power and might of God. They've seen him display his sovereignty over false gods, foreign kings and huge armies. And yet they refuse to accept that God could be demonstrating that same power through Jesus. Because accepting that that's what's going on would mean beginning to accept that Jesus is more than just a man. At the very least, it would mean accepting that God is using Jesus in a way he's used no man before. And that makes Jesus very dangerous. In order to maintain their authority over the people, they have to pull Jesus down. Otherwise, their status and position are in jeopardy. That, I think, is why they're always around in these early chapters of the Gospels. It looks like they're just trying to be nosy or waiting for Jesus to trip himself up, which is probably partly the case. But they're also making sure that they use every opportunity to undermine Jesus and to sow seeds of doubt in the crowds gathering around him. So what do these three have in common? The sick woman, the blind men, and the demon-possessed. Well, unlike some of the others that Matthew has introduced us to, they're all outcast. Because of their sufferings, each of them would be forced to live outside of normal society. The sick woman would be considered unclean. No one would want to touch her, even to be around her. She would be unable to have normal relationships with people. Everyone would want to keep her at a distance. She would be living on the fringes, excluded from much of what life had to offer. The blind men would, almost by definition, most likely have spent their lives begging on the streets. They would have no part to play in society. They were of no use to anyone. They wouldn't be able to work. Many would have considered them to be receiving punishment from God. Joy in life would be lacking as they fought to survive, scraping by on the handouts of others. The demon-possessed man had no voice, literally. We don't know if the inability to speak was the only effect of the demon, but that alone would have left him on the edges. He might have been able to make his needs known to others, but how could he share his dreams, his fears? Did he have to wait for someone else to think of it before he was brought to Jesus? Each of these people would have been considered flawed, imperfect. But what they have in common is that they each knew that they didn't need to be rid of those flaws before they came to Jesus. The woman was so desperate for Jesus' healing that she fought her way through the crowd, a crowd that would have been none too pleased to have her touch them if they knew who she was. She'd spent years living in shame and was too embarrassed to speak to Jesus, but even in her shame, she knew he could heal her. 
The blind men cried out to Jesus for mercy and then followed him down the road. They knew that life had more to offer them. They knew that they had something to offer back. If only Jesus would restore them. Despite their apparent uselessness, they sought Jesus out, knowing that he wouldn't see them as useless. He wouldn't see them as in the way. The demon-possessed man had no voice of his own. By this world's standards, he had nothing to say. No opinion that mattered. But however he came to be brought to Jesus, whether by his own pleading or the suggestion of others, he found someone who would give him a voice. Someone who would free him from that which had kept him silent. So what has the dead girl got to do with all of this? She's not an outcast. She hasn't spent her life on the edges of society. She isn't begging on the streets. In fact, her father is an important man. He's the leader of the synagogue. Mark and Luke identify him as a man called Jairus. He has position and status. But her story isn't here to be another example And I don't think it's just about the miracle of raising her from the dead. I think that's an illustration. Let's just think back to that panoramic view. What has Matthew shown us so far? We've seen the cost of following Jesus. You may be asked to give up everything, and life will not be easy. We've seen the call to follow Jesus. After seeing his authority over sickness, nature, and evil, will you take that step? Last week we saw that Jesus is offering something new. This isn't just more of the same. Now in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus uses a parable to describe his kingdom, he usually starts by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, I think Matthew could have put that in this passage in place of the story of the little girl. The kingdom of heaven is like freedom from shame. The kingdom of heaven is like freely given mercy. The kingdom of heaven is like freedom from the chains that bind. The raising of the little girl and these healings gathered around it are an illustration of what new life in Jesus looks like. Jesus offers life so new, so different, it's like being raised from the dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul says... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Matthew has used these four people to show us just what being made alive with Christ really looks like. 
Jesus declared that he came that we might have life, life in all its fullness. That's not just eternal life, that's now. New life with Christ starts the minute you reach out to grab his coat. The minute you cry out to him for mercy. The minute you ask him to free you from everything that binds you. This is life, real life. My guess is that woman refused to ever again live on the edges, live in the shadows. My guess is those blind men played their part and refused to ever feel useless again. My guess is that demon-possessed man refused to be quiet. I'm sure he made his voice heard. We all have new life promised to us. What are you going to do with it? The purpose of that new life is to glorify God. Will you glorify God with every moment of the new life that he has given you? Let's pray. Father, the new life that you offer is so abundant, so glorious. It's real life. And we pray that you would help each of us to grab hold of that. To see it as rebirth, as new life. And to use every minute of that new life to glorify you. That every breath we take in our new life with you would bring you glory, would lift your name on high. Father, we pray that you would invade every moment of our lives and we would shine your light out in every moment too. Amen.